Chapter Thirteen of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Neefit is disturbed. On the morning following Mrs. Brownlow's little tea party, Ralph Newton was bound by appointment to call upon Sir Thomas. But before he started on that duty, a certain friend of his called upon him. This friend was Mr. Neefit, but before the necessary account of Mr. Neefit's mission is given, the reader must be made acquainted with a few circumstances as they had occurred at Hendon. It will be remembered, perhaps, that on the Sunday evening the two rivals left the cottage at the same moment, one taking the road to the right and the other that to the left, so that bloodshed for that occasion at least was prevented. Neefit, said his wife to him, when they were alone together, you'll be getting yourself into trouble. You be blowed, said Neefit. He was very angry with his wife, and was considering what steps he would take to maintain his proper marital and parental authority. He was not going to give way to the weaker vessel in a matter of such paramount importance as to be made a fool of in his own family. He was quite sure of this, while the strength of the port wine still stood in him, and though he was somewhat more troubled in spirit when his wife began to bully him on the next morning, he still had valor enough to say that Ontario Moggs also might be blowed. On the Monday, when he returned home and asked for Polly, he found that Polly was out walking. Mrs. Neefit did not at once tell him that Moggs was walking with her, but such was the fact. Just at five o'clock Moggs had presented himself at the cottage, knowing very well, sly dog that he was, the breeches-maker's hour of return, which took place always precisely at four minutes past six, and boldly demanded an interview with Polly. "'I should like to hear what she's got to say to me,' said he looking boldly, almost savagely, into Mrs. Neefit's face. According to that matron's ideas, this was the proper way in which maidens should be wooed in one. And though Polly had at first declared that she had nothing at all to say to Mr. Moggs, she allowed herself at last to be led forth. Till they had passed the railway station on the road, leading away from London, Ontario said not a word of his purpose. Polly, feeling that silence was awkward, and finding that she was being hurried along at a tremendous pace, spoke of the weather and of the heat, and expostulated. "'It is hot, very hot,' said Ontario, taking off his hat and wiping his brow. "'But there are moments in a man's life when he can't go slow.' "'Then there are moments in his life when he must go on by himself,' said Polly." but her pluck was too good for her to desert him at such a moment, and although he hardly moderated his pace till he had passed the railway station, she kept by his side. As things had gone so far, it might be quite as well now that she should hear what he had to say. A dim, hazy idea had crossed the mind of Moggs that it would be as well that he should get out into the country before he began his task and that the line of the railway which passed beneath the road about a quarter of a mile beyond Mr. Neefit's cottage 
might be considered as the boundary which divided the town from the pastoral joys. He waited, therefore, till the bridge was behind them, till they had passed the station, which was close to the bridge, and then he began. "'Polly,' said he, "'you know what brings me here?' Polly did know very well, but she was not bound to confess such knowledge. "'You've brought me here, Mr. Moggs, and that's all I know,' she said. "'Yes, I've brought you here. Polly, what took place last night made me very unhappy. Very unhappy indeed. I can't help that, Mr. Moggs. Not that I mean to blame you. Blame me? I should think not. Blame me indeed. Why are you to blame anybody, because father chooses to ask whom he pleases to dinner? A pretty thing indeed, if father isn't to have whom he likes in his own house. Polly, you know what I mean. I know you made a great goose of yourself last night, and I didn't feel a bit obliged to you. No, I didn't. I wasn't a goose at all. I don't say but what I'm as big a fool as most men. I don't mean to stick up for myself. I know well enough that I am foolish often. But I wasn't foolish last night. What was he there for? What business have you to ask, Mr. Moggs? All the business in life. Love, real love. That's why I have business. That young man who is, I suppose, what you call a swell. Don't you put words into my mouth, Mr. Moggs. I don't call him anything of the kind. He's a gentleman. Yes, he is a gentleman, I suppose. And I'm a tradesman, a bootmaker. So is father a tradesman. And if you mean to tell me that I turn up my nose at people the same as father is, you may just go back to London and think what you like about me. I won't put up with it from you or anybody. A tradesman to me is as good as anybody, if he is as good. There. Oh, Polly, you do look so beautiful. Father. When you say that and speak in that way, I think you as good as you are beautiful. Remember, I don't say a word against what you call gentlemen. I take them just as they come. Mr. Newton is a very nice young man. Are you going to take him, Polly? How can I take him when he has never asked me? You are not my father, Mr. Moggs, nor yet my uncle. What right have you to question me? If I was going to take him, I shouldn't want your leave. Polly, you ought to be honest. I am honest. Will you hear me, Polly? No, I won't. You won't? Is that answer to go for always? Yes, it is. You come and tease and say uncivil things, and I don't choose to be bullied. What right have you to talk to me about Mr. Newton? Did I ever give you any right? Honest, indeed. What right have you to talk to me about being honest? It's all true, dear. Very well, then. Hold your tongue and don't say such things. Honest, indeed. If I were to take the young man tomorrow, that would not make me dishonest. It's all true, dear, and I beg your pardon. If I have offended you, I will beg your pardon. Never mind about that. Only don't say foolish things. 
Is it foolish, Polly, to say that I love you? And if I love you, can I like to see a young fellow like Mr. Newton hanging about after you? He doesn't love you. He can't love you, as I do. Your father brings him here because he is a gentleman. I don't think anything of his being a gentleman. But think of me. Of course I was unhappy, wretched, miserable. I knew why he was there. You can understand, Polly, that when a man really loves, he must be the miserablest or the happiest of human beings. I don't understand anything about it. I wish you would let me teach you. I don't want to learn, and I doubt whether you'd make a good master. I really must go back now, Mr. Moggs. I came out because Mother said I'd better. I don't know that it could do any good if we were to walk on to Edgware. And so saying, Polly turned back. He walked beside her half the way home in silence, thinking that if he could only choose the proper words and the proper tone, he might yet prevail. But feeling that the proper words and the proper tone were altogether out of his reach, on those favorite subjects, the ballot or the power of strikes, he could always find the proper words and the proper tone when he rose upon his legs at the Cheshire Cheese. And yet, much as he loved the ballot, he loved Polly Neefit infinitely more dearly. When at the Cheshire Cheese he was a man, but now, walking with the girl of his heart, he felt himself to be a bootmaker, and the smell of the leather depressed him. It was evident that she would walk the whole way home in silence, if he would permit it. The railway station was already again in sight, when he stopped her on the pathway, and made one more attempt. "'You believe me when I say that I love you?' "'I don't know, Mr. Moggs.' "'Oh, Polly, you don't know.' "'But it doesn't signify, not in the least. I ain't bound to take a man because he loves me.' You won't take Mr. Newton, will you? I don't know. I won't say anything about it. Mr. Newton is nothing to you. Then there was a pause. If you think, Mr. Moggs, that you can recommend yourself to a young woman by such tantrums as there were going on last night, you are very much mistaken. That's not the way to win me. I wish I knew which way was the way. Mr. Newton never said a word. Your father told him to take you out a-walking, before my very eyes. Was I to bear that? Think of it, Polly. You mayn't care for me, and I don't suppose you do, but you may understand what my feelings were. What would you have thought of me if I'd stayed there smoking and borne it quiet, and you going about with that young man? I'll tell you what it is, Polly. I couldn't bear it, and I won't. There, and now you know what I mean." At this point in his speech he took off his hat and waved it in the air. I won't bear it. There are things a man can't bear. Can't bear. Can't bear. Oh, Polly, if you could only be brought to understand what it is that I feel. After all, he didn't do it so very badly. There was just a tear in the corner of Polly's eye, though Polly was very careful that he shouldn't see it. And Polly did know well enough that he was in earnest, that he was in fact true. But then he was gawky and ungainly. It was not that he was a shoemaker. 
Could he have had his own wits and danced like the gasfitter, he might have won her still against Ralph Newton with all his blood in white hands. But poor Ontario was, as regarded externals, so ill a subject for a great passion. "'And where have you been, Polly?' said her father, as soon as she entered the house. "'I have been walking with Ontario Moggs,' said Polly boldly. "'What have you been saying to him? I won't have you walk with Ontario Moggs. I and your mother'll have to fall out if this kind of thing goes on.' "'Don't be silly, father.' "'What do you mean by that, miss?' "'It is silly. Why shouldn't I walk with him? Haven't I known him all my life, and walked with him scores of times? Isn't it silly, father? Don't I know that if I told you I loved Ontario Moggs, you'd let me marry him tomorrow?' "'He'd have to take you in what you stand up in.' "'He wouldn't desire anything better. I'll say that for him.' He's true and honest. I'd love him if I could, only somehow I don't. You've told him you didn't, once and for all? I don't know about that, father. He'll come again, you may be sure. He's one of that sort that isn't easily said nay to. If you mean, have I said yes, I haven't. I'll never say yes to any man unless I love him. When I do say it, I shall mean it whether it's Auntie Moggs or anybody else. I'm not going to be given away, you know, like a birthday present out of a shop. There's nobody as can give me away, father, only myself. To all which utterances of a rebellious spirit, the breeches-maker made no answer. He knew that Polly would at least be true to him, and as she was as yet free, the field was still open to his candidate. He believed thoroughly that, had not his wife interfered and asked the bootmaker to join that unfortunate dinner-party, his daughter and Ralph Newton would now have been engaged together, and probably it might have been so. When first it had been whispered to Polly that that handsome and very agreeable young gentleman, Mr. Ralph Newton, might become a suitor for her hand, she had chucked up her head and declared to her mother that she didn't intend to take a husband of her father's choosing. But as she came to know Ralph a little, she did find that he was good-looking and agreeable, and her heart did flutter at the idea of becoming the wife of a real undoubted gentleman. She meant to have her grand passion, and she must be quite sure that Mr. Newton loved her. But she didn't see any reason why Mr. Newton shouldn't love her, and upon the whole she was inclined to obey her father rather than to disobey him. And it might still be that he should win her, for he had done nothing to disgrace himself in her sight. But there did lurk within her bosom some dim idea that he should have bestirred himself more thoroughly on that Sunday evening, and not have allowed himself to be driven out of the field by Ontario Moggs. She wronged him there, as indeed he had had no alternative, unless he had followed her up to her bedroom. Mr. Neefit, when he found that no harm had as yet been done, resolved that he would return to the charge. It had been before observed that he lacked something in delicacy. But what he did so lack he made up in persistency. He had been unable to impute any blame to Ralph as to that evening. 
he felt that he rather owed an apology to his favorite candidate. He would make the apology, and inform the favorite candidate, at the same time, that the course was still open to him. With these views he left Conduit Street early on the Wednesday morning, and called on Ralph at his rooms. "'Mr. Newton,' he said, hastening at once upon the grand subject, I hope you didn't think as I was to blame in having Moggs at our little dinner on Sunday. Ralph declared that he had never thought of imputing blame to anyone. But it was as awkward as awkward could be. It was my wife's doing. Of course you can see how it all is. That chap has been hankering after Polly ever since she was in her teens. But, Lord love you, Captain, he ain't a chance with her. He was there again a Monday, but the girl wouldn't have a word to say to him. Ralph sat silent and very grave. He was taken now somewhat by surprise, having felt, up to this moment, that he would at least have the advantage of a further interview with Sir Thomas before he need say another word to Mr. Neefit. "'What I want you to do, Captain, is just to pop it, straight off, to my girl.' I know she'd take you because of her way of looking. Not mine that she ever said so, oh no, but the way to find out is just to ask the question. You see, Mr. Neefit, it wasn't very easy to ask it last Sunday, said Ralph, attempting to laugh. Moggs has been at her again, said Neefit. This argument was good. Had Ralph been as anxious as Moggs, he would have made his opportunity. And to tell you the truth, Mr. Neefit, well, sir, there is nothing so disagreeable as interfering in families. I admire your daughter amazingly. She's a trump, Mr. Newton. She is indeed, and I thoroughly appreciate the great generosity of your offer. I'll be as good as my word, Mr. Newton. The money shall all be there, down on the nail. But you see, your wife is against me. Blow my wife. You don't think Polly'd do what her mother tells her. Who's got the money bag? That's the question. You go down and pop it straight. You ain't afraid of an old woman, I suppose, nor yet of a young un. Don't mind waiting for more dinners or anything of that kind. They likes a man to be hot about it. That's what they likes. You're sure to find her any time before dinner. That's at one, you know. Maybe she mayn't be flicked out fine, but you won't mind that. I'll go bail you'll find the flesh and blood all right. Just you make your way in and say what you've got to say. I'll make it straight with the old woman afterwards. Ralph Newton had hitherto rather prided himself on his happy management of young ladies. He was not ordinarily much afflicted by shyness, and conceived himself able to declare a passion, perhaps whether he felt or feigned, as well as another, and now he was being taught how to go a-wooing by his breeches-maker. He did not altogether like it, and as at this moment his mind was rather set against the Hendon matrimonial speculation, he was disposed to resent it. "'I think you're making a little mistake, Mr. Neefit,' he said. "'What mistake?' I don't know as I'm making any mistake. You'll be making a mistake, and so you'll find when the plum's gone. It's just this, you know. 
when you suggested this thing to me. Well, yes, I did suggest it, and I ain't ashamed of it. I was awfully grateful. I had met your daughter once or twice, and I told you I admired her ever so much. That's true. But you didn't admire her a bit more than what she's entitled to. I'm sure of that. But then I thought I ought just to know her a little better, you see. And then how could I presume to think she'd take me till she knew me a little better? Presume to think. Is that all you know about young women? Pop the question right out and give her a bus. That's the way. Newton paused a moment before he spoke and looked very grave. I think you're driving me a little too fast, Mr. Neefit, he said at last. The deuce I am, driving you too fast? What does that mean? There must be a little management and deliberation in these things. If I were to do as you propose, I should not recommend myself to your daughter, and I should myself feel that, at the most important crisis of my life, I was allowing myself to be hurried beyond my judgment. These words were spoken with a slow solemnity of demeanor, and a tone of voice so serious, that for a moment they perfectly awed the breeches-maker. Ralph was almost successful in reducing his proposed father-in-law to a state of absolute subjection. Mr. Neefit was all but induced to forget that he stood there with twenty thousand pounds in his pocket. There came a drop or two of perspiration on his brow, and his large saucer eyes almost quailed before those of his debtor. But at last he rallied himself, though not entirely. He could not quite assume that self-assertion which he knew that his position would have warranted, but he did keep his flag up after a fashion. I dare say you know your own business best, Mr. Newton. Only them's not my ideas, that's all. I come to you fair and honest, and I repeats the same. Good morning, Mr. Newton. So he went, and nothing had been settled. To say that Ralph had even yet made up his mind would be to give him praise which was not his due. He was still doubting, though in his doubts the idea of marrying Polly Neefit became more indistinct and less alluring than ever. By this time he almost hated Mr. Neefit, and most unjustly regarded that man as a persecutor who was taking advantage of his pecuniary ascendancy to trample him. He thinks I must take his daughter because I owe him two or three hundred pounds. Such were Ralph Newton's thoughts about the breeches-maker, which thoughts were very unjust. Neefit was certainly vulgar, illiterate, and indelicate, but he was a man who could do a generous action, and having offered his daughter to this young aristocrat, would have scorned to trouble him afterwards about his little bill. Ralph sat trying to think for about an hour and then walked to Southampton Buildings. He had not much hope as he went. Indeed, hope hardly entered into his feelings. Sir Thomas would, of course, say unpleasant words to him, and of course he would be unable to answer them. There was no ground for hoping anything, unless, indeed, he could make himself happy in a snug little box in a hunting country with Polly Neefit for his wife, living on the interest of the breeches-maker's money. He was quite alive to the fact that in this position he would in truth be the most miserable dog in existence. 
that it would be infinitely better for him to turn his prospects into cash and buy sheep in Australia, or cattle in South America, or to grow corn in Canada. Any life would be better than one supported in comfortable idleness on Mr. Neefit's savings. Nevertheless, he felt that that would most probably be his doom. The sheep or the cattle or the corn required an amount of energy which he no longer possessed. There were the four horses at the moonbeam, and he could ride them to hounds as well as any man. So much he could do, and would seem in doing it to be full of life. But as for selling the four horses, and changing altogether the mode of his life, that was more than he had vitality left to perform. Such was the measure which he took of himself, and in taking it he despised himself thoroughly, knowing well how poor a creature he was. Sir Thomas told him readily what he had done, giving him to read a copy of his letter to Mr. Newton and Mr. Newton's reply. "'I can do nothing more,' said Sir Thomas. "'I hope you have given up the sad notion of marrying that young woman.' Ralph sat still and listened. "'No good, I think, can come of that,' continued Sir Thomas. "'If you are in truth compelled to part with your reversion to the Newton estate, which is in itself a property of great value, I do not doubt but your uncle will purchase it at its worth. It is a thousand pities that prospects so noble should have been dissipated by early imprudence.' "'That's quite true, Sir Thomas,' said Ralph, in a loud ringing tone, which seemed to imply that, let things be as bad as they might, he did not mean to make a poor mouth of them. It was his mask for the occasion, and it suffered to hide his misery from Sir Thomas. "'If you think of selling what you have to sell,' continued Sir Thomas, "'you had better take Mr. Newton's letter and put it into the hands of your own attorney. It will be ten times better than going to the money-lending companies for advances. If I had the means of helping you myself, I would do it. Oh, Sir Thomas! But I have not.' I should be robbing my own girls, which I am sure you would not wish. That is quite out of the question, Sir Thomas. If you do resolve on selling the estate, you had better come to me as the thing goes on. I can't do much, but I may perhaps be able to see that nothing improper is proposed for you to do. Goodbye, Ralph. Anything will be better than marrying that what do you call him's daughter. Ralph, as he walked westward toward the club, was by no means sure that Sir Thomas had been right in this. By marrying Polly he would, after all, keep the property. Just by the lions in Trafalgar Square he met Ontario Moggs. Ontario Moggs scowled at him and cut him dead. End of chapter 13 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina